0: This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time around. We're going to start tonight's show with two songs from 1963. First up, Misery from the Beatles' debut LP. The fifth song, recorded on February 11, 1963, was originally written for 16-year-old British singer Helen Shapiro, but was turned down by her manager, Nori Paramore, without her ever having heard it. McCartney recalled in 1988 that it may not have been that successful for her because it's rather a downbeat song. The world is treating me bad, misery. It was quite pessimistic. In 1963, however, McCartney felt differently about the possibility of Shapiro covering the song, stating that we've been asked by Nori Paramore to write a song for Helen Shapiro for her to record in Nashville. We've called it Misery, but it isn't as slow as it sounds. It moves along at quite a pace, and we think Helen will make a pretty good job of it. Although Shapiro never recorded the song, another performer on the Beatles' first package tour with Shapiro headlining would. Kenny Lynch had a minor hit with the tune, making it the first song written by Lennon and McCartney for another act. This would become commonplace within the next few months of 1963. Lennon and McCartney tackle the vocal together, predominantly in unison, only harmonizing on the title each time it comes around in thirds. This is an anomaly in The Beatles' early 1963 work, holding the distinction of being the song with the least amount of harmony on Please Please Me and its related singles. This mix is of take one, and will feature the vocals along with a bit of Lennon's Gibson J160E guitar. We'll then move on to a Smokey Robinson-influenced Lennon track from With The Beatles. All I've Got To Do featuring Lennon's incredibly emotional vocal performance showcased the soulfulness of his unaffected voice. Just listening to his embellishment of the melody leading up to the third bar of the second bridge is enough evidence that Lennon could evoke a pain and suffering in his voice like no other. Although he would often want to change the sound of his voice from double-tracking to ADT to very speed to laying down to record a vocal to hanging from a rope being swung around the studio, an idea that thankfully was not tried, he had one of the greatest rock voices of all time. According to Rolling Stone, it was the fifth greatest, following Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Elvis Presley, and Sam Cooke. Not bad company for a guy who himself hated it. Incidentally, McCartney was also honored at number 11, and for good reason. One reason in particular is the way he can blend so perfectly with Lennon's voice. When McCartney enters with his harmony of thirds and fourths leading into bar five of the A section, it adds another color, but only momentarily. Two bars later, Lennon is solo once again, but the one moment that they harmonize is outstanding. Two songs from 1963.
1: The world is treating me bad, misery I'm the kind of guy who never used to cry The world is treating me bad, misery I've lost her now for sure I won't see her no more Whenever I want you around, yeah All I gotta do is call you on the phone And you come running home Yeah, that's all I gotta do And when I, I wanna kiss you, yeah All I gotta do is whisper in your ear the words you long to hear, and I'll be kissing you. And the same goes for me whenever you want me at all. I'll be here, yes I will, whenever you call. You just gotta call on me, yeah. You just gotta call on me and when i i wanna kiss you yeah all i gotta do is call you on the phone and you come running home yeah that's all i gotta do and the same goes for me whenever you want me at all
2: i'll
1: be here so you just gotta call on me, yeah. You just gotta call on me, oh. You just gotta call on me.
0: We're going to continue with another song from 1963, written by Lennon, but never performed by the Beatles. Brian Epstein always believed that the fact that Lennon and McCartney could write songs was an advantage over other artists at the time, and he pushed his boys to write songs for other artists, seeing the financial and promotional advantage of having established artists record their songs. I'm In Love is one of those songs. In the fall of 1963, two versions were produced by George Martin, one by English Merseybeat band The Foremost, as well as one by Billy J. Kramer. The Foremost version was selected for release and reached number 17 in the U.K., Tonight we're going to hear Lennon's original vocal and piano demo, followed by Billy J. Kramer's version recorded with Lennon in the studio. Listen for John's comments, as well as George Martin telling Billy J. Kramer, I give you full permission to come to the Beatles session on Thursday and shout at John whenever you like. Finally, we'll hear a version recorded in 2009 by Seattle-based band Apple Jam for their CD Off the Beatle Track, which masterfully recreated the authentic sound of the Beatles and showcased songs the group composed in the early 60s but never released as a working band. Using the same microphones, gear, and studio techniques of the period, Their goal was to make the album sound just like an early Beatles record, between With the Beatles and A Hard Day's Night, and they definitely succeeded with an authentic Beatles sound, as if the Liverpool songwriters had released these songs themselves. One of my favorite unreleased Beatles songs, I'm In Love.
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs> One two three four. I'm in love. Hey. Adam Fager. I I can't get it, John. <laughs> <laughs> Full permission to come to the Beatles session on Thursday and shout at John whenever you like. 32
1: I can't sleep Thinking of you And every little thing that you do Yes, I'm telling all my friends I'm in love, I'm in love Yes, I'm telling all my friends kind of girl, you make me feel
2: proud, you make me want to shout all around, Ooh. yes I'm telling all my friends, I'm in
1: love, every night I can see, thinking of you, and every little
2: thing.
0: Next up, the instrumental track of the Beatles' first riff-based song, You Can't Do That. Written while the group was in Miami for their Ed Sullivan Show appearance, the song is pure Lennon musically and lyrically. The song was originally meant to be a part of the concert segment in the movie A Hard Day's Night. They went as far as filming the sequence in front of an audience of 350 fans at the Scala Theater in London. Although the song was cut from the film, it was broadcast exclusively on The Ed Sullivan Show on April 17, 1964, six weeks before the film's world premiere. In a 1964 interview, Harrison expressed his thoughts about their current single. I think the B-side is good. It's more interesting to us musically, to be honest. But the impact of Camp I Me Love is more instant than You Can't Do That. It's the more commercial side. But then, I thought this boy should have been an A-side. They did Camp not Me Love in Paris, and the other side over in Miami Beach. Ringo and I didn't chip in with any of it, except at the recording session, where we always tried to help. We suggest little things here and there. This bit of information leads us to believe that Lennon came up with the guitar riff that is the true hook of the song before entering the studio. This is not surprising as he would go on to pen such riff-based hits as I Feel Fine, Day Tripper, and Ticket to Ride. But the story doesn't stop there. In 2011, Rolling Stone published their list of the top 100 guitarists with George Harrison landing at number 11. Tom Petty was asked to write the entry on George and conveys a different story. George Harrison and I were once in a car and the Beatles song You Can't Do That came on with that great riff in the beginning on the 12th string. He goes, I came up with that, and I said, really? How? He said, I was just standing there and thought I've got to do something. That pretty much sums him up. He just had a way of getting right to the business, of finding the right thing to play. That was part of that Beatles magic. They all seemed to find the right thing to play. Whether Lennon or Harrison came up with this memorable lick is hard to say for sure, but either way, it is a turning point. Although the group is familiar with songs that were based around a particular lick, such as Money, Johnny Be Good, What I'd Say, and Watch Your Step, to name a few, You Can't Do That marks the first use of a guitar hook in a Beatles original composition. Once again, the group is ahead of the pack and are one of the first rock groups of the 60s to write a song that revolves around a guitar line, with the kinks you really got me still five months away from being recorded and the Rolling Stones I Can't Get No Satisfaction not seeing release for over a year. Arguably, you can't do that as the first original Beatles song that is more rock than pop. The idea of the two-bar riff was already in their consciousness from songs such as Money, Words of Love, and Raunchy, to name a few. But their spin on it would be a bit different, causing the Stones, the Yardbirds, the Kinks, and others to develop songs that were based on short, memorable riffs played on the guitar. The Beatles themselves would go on to pen other compositions where the riff was the hook of the song, such as I Feel Fine, Day Tripper, Ticket to Ride, and Paperback Rider, and this would be one of the elements of their sound that would herald the rise of rock music. It also marks the debut performance of Lennon as lead guitarist. In a 1964 interview with Melody Maker, he spoke candidly about his role as rhythm guitarist in the Beatles. I'd find it a drag to play rhythm all the time, so I always worked myself out something interesting to play. The best example I could think of is like I did on You Can't Do That. There really isn't a lead guitarist and a rhythm guitarist on that, because I feel the rhythm guitarist's role sounds too thin for records. Anyway, it drove me potty to play Chunk Chunk Rhythm all the time. I never play anything as lead guitarist that George couldn't do better, but I like playing lead sometimes, so I do it. Going to continue with another riff-based song, this one from 1965, Day Tripper. Recorded at the third session for the Rubber Soul LP on October 16th, 1965, it was slated as their 11th UK single, and their first to be a double A-sided release with both Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out reaching the number one position in the charts. Although the song had been written before the session, they spent the first four and a half hours rehearsing and discussing the arrangement. As to who wrote the song, Lennon has changed his story over the years. In 1969, he claimed full authorship, but then in 1972, he recalled that he thought Paul helped with the verse. By 1980, he had changed the story yet again, stating, that's mine, including the guitar lick, the guitar break, and the whole bit. It's just a rock and roll song. Day trippers are people who go on a day trip, right? Usually on a ferry boat or something, but it was a kind of, you know, you're just a weekend hippie, get it? In 1994, McCartney took a bit more credit for the songwriting and cited the drug reference. Acid was coming on the scene and we'd often do these songs about the girl who thought she was it. Mainly the impetus for that used to come from John. I think John met quite a few girls who thought they were it. But this was just a tongue-in-cheek song about somebody who was a day tripper, a Sunday painter, a Sunday driver, somebody who was committed only in part to the idea. Well, we saw ourselves as full-time trippers, fully committed drivers. She was just a day tripper. That was a co-written effort. We were both making it all up, but I would give John the main credit surprising that McCartney considered himself a full-time tripper, being that he wouldn't take acid until over a year later. We all know that the guitar riff, doubled by the bass, is the hook of the song. But for this mix, we're going to drop out the riff when the vocals come in to highlight them along with Ringo's fabulous groove and fills. Bass will come in on the second chorus and continue throughout the middle section before dropping out to finally showcase John and George's guitars for the last verse and chorus, Day Tripper. another song from Rubber Soul. The group was at the end of their tether on November 10th, 1965, working until 4 in the morning. They knew when they completed the session that day, November 11th, 1965, was the deadline to complete their album, Rubber Soul. Therefore, they entered EMI Studio 2 at 6 p.m. for a 13 hour session to finish the LP. They spent the first five hours from 6 to 11 to record Paul's latest composition, You Won't See Me, which had been completed just before the session began. The rhythm track consisted of Paul on piano, George on guitar, Ringo on drums, and John on tambourine. Overdubs followed with Paul laying down his double-tracked vocals, which occasionally slipped into a harmony part, as well as his complex bassline. John and George's background harmonies and a hi-hat overdub by Ringo were also added. We also have a contribution from Rhodey Mal Evans, a single-note Hammond organ overdub on the track held throughout the last verse and until the song fades out. The Beatles' faithful Rhodey even got a credit on the back of the LP cover, as organ Evans. Quite rare indeed. McCartney elaborated on the song's writing. Normally I write on guitar and have full chords, or on the piano when I have full chords. But this was written around two little notes, a very slim phrase, a two-note progression that I had very high in the first two strings of the guitar, the E and the B strings. I had it up on the high E position, and I just let the note on the B string descend a semitone at a time, and kept the top note the same. And against that, I was playing a descending chromatic scale. Then I wrote the tune for You Won't See Me Against It, I changed it, but it was still a two-note thing. But instead of it going down, I pushed it up and then came down again. Just a slight variation. This is another true remix with different vocals and instruments coming in and out throughout the song, although the vocals are definitely the feature. McCartney's You Won't See Me.
1: Since I lost you It feels like years Yes, it seems so long Girl, since you've been gone And I just can't
0: Next up, a song that combined two unfinished compositions by Lennon and McCartney. Much like A Day in the Life and I've Got a Feeling. The verses from One of the Beautiful People by John Lennon were combined with Paul McCartney's previously unaccompanied Baby You're a Rich Man chorus. Lennon elaborated in his 1980 interview with David Sheff. That's a combination of two separate pieces, Paul's and mine, put together and forced into one song. One half was all mine, How Does It Feel to Be One of the Beautiful People, Now That You Know Who You Are, Then Paul comes in with Baby, You're a Rich Man, which was a lick he had around. Recorded on May 11, 1967, it was the first time the Beatles recorded at Olympic Studios in Barnes, a favorite studio of the Rolling Stones, where they recorded six albums between 1966 and 1972. The instrumentation for the song is unique for a Beatles recording, featuring John Lennon on clavioline, an early forerunner of the synthesizer being a three-octave monophonic keyboard. The instrument was in the studio that day, Lennon seized the opportunity to add something different to the track. The clavoline was most notably featured on Runaway by Del Shannon in 1961 and on the Tornadoes' 1962 hit Telstar. Second engineer Eddie Kramer, who worked with the Stones and later Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, and countless others, added a barely audible vibraphone, and supposedly Mick Jagger sang on the fade out. This is another true remix that will feature many different elements of this underrated song. Baby, you're a rich man. How does to
2: be one of the beautiful people?
1: Now that you know
0: Welcome back to the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Next, we're going to hear a George Harrison composition that Frank Sinatra stated was his favorite Lennon and McCartney song, and in his opinion, the best love song ever written. By 1969, Harrison was writing songs on par with his bandmates Lennon and McCartney, but still could not get the same space on the albums. Let It Be and Abbey Road only featured two Harris songs each, although many more were auditioned and worked on during the January 1969 Get Back sessions, Many of these songs were as good as, and some were better, than what both Lennon and McCartney had to offer, but they were still passed over and wouldn't be released until 1970's 3-LP opus, All Things Must Pass. It was both a blessing and a curse to be a fledging songwriter in the Beatles. On one hand, Harrison was lucky to have watched two of the greatest songwriters of all time working and reworking songs on buses, vans, backstage, and in hotel rooms for a number of years. But the unfortunate reality of writing songs for a band that already had such prolific, incomparable songwriters was that his songs were rarely given the same time and effort as Lennon and McCartney compositions. George Martin takes some of the blame for this. I think the trouble with George was that he was never treated on the same level as having the same quality of songwriting by anyone, by John, by Paul, or by me. I'm as guilty in that respect. I was the guy who used to say, if he's got a song, we'll let him have it on the album, very condescendingly. In this type of atmosphere, it is no surprise that Harrison withdrew from songwriting for so long, and unfortunate as it may seem, at this point, his main concern was to be a formidable lead guitarist. After Don't Bother Me was recorded for the Beatles' second LP with the Beatles, Harrison would not have an original song on record until their fifth LP, Help, released nearly two years later. With Lennon and McCartney consistently providing such amazing songs and giving little support to Harrison, it made it hard to bring compositions to the table for him and caused him to concentrate more on his playing until 1965. Harrison elaborated in a 1970 interview. The problem was that John and Paul had written songs for so long, it was difficult. First of all, because they had such a lot of tunes, and they automatically thought that theirs should be priority. So for me, I'd always have to wait through 10 of their songs before they'd even listen to one of mine. I had a little encouragement from time to time, but it was very little. It was like they were doing me a favor. I didn't have much confidence in writing songs because of that, because they never said, yeah, that's a good song. And also, I suppose, at that time, I didn't have as much confidence when it came down to pushing my own material as I have now. So it took a while. He also stated that John and Paul had an advantage over him, having written most of their bad songs before we got into the recording studio. For me, I had to come from nowhere and start writing, and to have something at least quality enough to be able to put it in the record with all their wondrous hits. Lennon apparently agreed. Paul and I really carved up the empire between us. George didn't even used to sing when we brought him into the group. He was a guitarist. He just wasn't in the same league for a long time. That's not putting him down. He just hadn't had the practice writing that we had. Surprisingly, McCartney stated in the Beatles anthology that he and Lennon considered including Harrison as a writing partner in the early days. It was an option to include George in the songwriting team. John and I had really talked about it. I remember walking up past Walton Church with John one morning, going over the question, without wanting to be too mean to George, should three of us write, or would it be better to keep it simple? We decided we'd just keep to two of us. By the time the group recorded their final album in 1969, Harrison had penned what many believe are the two best songs on Abbey Road, Here Comes the Sun and Something. Borrowing the first line of Apple recording artist James Taylor's Something in the Way She Moves, Harrison created one of the Beatles' most beautiful compositions and its first A-side of a single. Written by George on the piano, the song had been attempted during the Get Back sessions and later demoed by George on February 28, 1969, with him on piano and guitar. Many people, including Patti Harrison, believe it was written about her, but in a 1996 interview George denied this, stating that he was thinking about Ray Charles when he wrote it. The basic track was first attempted on April 16th and then remade on May 2nd, with Starr, McCartney, Harrison, and Lennon on piano, although the majority of the piano is mixed out of the final version. Tonight we're going to hear a number of different recorded versions of something starting with one of the rehearsals of the song from the Get Back sessions. This particular one recorded on January 28th with Billy Preston on organ. We'll then hear an early mono mix of the final version with more prominent piano played by Lennon and an extended jam on the fade out. Finally, we'll hear two mixes of the final track released on Abbey Road. The first will be an instrumental featuring only the rhythm section and some fantastic playing from Starr, McCartney and Harrison. We'll then hear a mix with vocals, guitar, Billy Preston's organ and George Martin's lovely string arrangement. George Harrison's number one single, Something. Something
2: in the way she moves. track to 8-track something take 37
1: believe and now You know I believe in how Somewhere in the smile she knows That I don't need no One, two, three. Something in the way She woos me I don't want to leave her now You know I believe in how Somewhere in her smile She knows But I don't need to style that shows me I don't want to leave her now You know I believe in how You're asking me will my love grow
2: Show
0: Bustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and you've been listening to the Beatles multi-track Meltdown. Tune in every week for more deconstructed, stripped-down mixes of classic Beatles songs, live performances, and solo recordings. You could follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the Facebook page for I Want to Tell You. It also makes a great gift, and you can pick it up on Amazon.com And at the website, The Beatles, I want to tell you. See you next week.